So let's begin Daniel chapter 1. The first division is Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 6 verse 28. So basically the first six chapters. This is the stories of God using Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the lives of the pagans around them. The main focus here is on God's sovereignty over the nations and Daniel and his friends' willingness to submit to the sovereignty of God and keep things going. In this division, there are several sections. And the first section is just chapter 1. In this section, this is an introduction. This is basically, most scholars believe that this is an introduction. There's not really a whole lot going on with Daniel's connection to the pagan empires. It's mostly, it's all in Hebrew. It's mostly focused on Daniel. It's not really trying to develop absolutely God's sovereignty over all things. It's setting up to who Daniel is, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what kind of person they are, what will make them successful, what their character is like. So he's introducing them as characters. Who are they as characters? What makes them unique? How, therefore, how they're going to be able to be used by God. Then in chapter 2, the story begins of God using them. So this is the introduction. In chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem and laid it under siege. The Lord delivered the King Jehoiakim of Judah into his power, along with some of the vessels of the temple of God. He brought them to the land of Babylon, to the temple of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Jehoiakim was the third to the last king of Judah. So Jehoiakim, and then he was taken out and replaced by Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin was later kidnapped and taken into prison in Babylon. And then he was replaced by Zedekiah, who Zedekiah was eventually taken off by Nebuchadnezzar when he sacked the temple. Nebuchadnezzar comes in during the reign of Jehoiakim, the third to last king of Judah, and he takes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with him, and he carries many of the articles of the temple away with him. What's interesting is that this book begins with the Nebuchadnezzar doing the action. He comes, he puts the city under siege, and he takes. And so in Kings, at the very end of 2 Kings, it says that Nebuchadnezzar took the articles of the temple. So he invades the temple of God, which no human should be able to do if Yahweh is truly powerful and Yahweh would stop him. That's the way they're thinking. I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that's the way they're thinking. What they don't realize is that God's already said, we've talked about this in the prophets, in Ezekiel, God gave Ezekiel a vision of God leaving the temple. And when he leaves the temple, that means the temple is no longer the house of God. It's just a building. Which means it is easy for Nebuchadnezzar to come in, invade, and take because it's just a building now. God's glory is not there anymore. This is God leaving the people to give them over into judgment, not God being too weak to defend his own temple. And that's the theology that the prophets present. However, that's not the theology that Nebuchadnezzar would be thinking in his mind. So what Nebuchadnezzar is thinking is, I came, I took, I conquered. And that makes him more powerful than Yahweh. But the narrator comes in with one slight shift of thinking at the very end. 
It says in verse 2, Now Yahweh delivered King Jehoiakim of Judah into his power along with some of the vessels of the temple of God. He brought them to the land of Babylon to the temple of his God. So what he, God is saying is, you didn't come and take because you conquer. God's saying, I gave this to you. And so this story immediately begins not with Nebuchadnezzar's superiority and his ability to conquer and take. It begins with God saying, I have given it to you. And therefore, I can take it away whenever I want. And he will in chapter 4 of Daniel. Right off the bat, the narrator is letting you know God is sovereign even over an event that you think this empire has more control. And we need to be reminded of that as we look at our own government. Whatever power our government has been able to seize, whatever position that they're able to obtain, is only because Yahweh gave it to them. And whatever he gives, he can take. And so this is how the book of Daniel begins, with God is the one who gave it to him. And what's very powerful is that when Cyrus II, later when we get to the book of Ezra, is going to command them in 536 to go back to their land, it's going to say that God led Cyrus to give them all the articles of the temple back. And Zerubbabel and Joshua carried these articles back with them to the land of Israel. And so here you see this exile's book ended by God saying, I gave you, and now I will cause you to return it to me when you're done. So this isn't them seizing power because it's superior, superior, superior. This is God allowing them to borrow for a time period because he has a purpose he wants to accomplish. And once that purpose is accomplished, they will return. They will return. And Daniel begins in that way. And he puts these in the vessels of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar in his mind is thinking, I conquered Yahweh's people. I will take Yahweh's stuff as a treasure. I will carry them off and put them in my temple of my God, which would have been Marduk, as a trophy of my superiority. And what they don't realize is God made Israel throw the race, so to speak, and that's why they won. I mean, that's the idea. Israel could win the race because God is their God. But because of their sin, he made them throw the race, and that's the only reason Nebuchadnezzar II was able to win. But when they're restored, they will win the race again, so to speak. Not this is about success and flaunting. It's just an analogy. So, Verse 3. The king commanded Ashpenaz, who was in charge of the court officials, to choose some of the Israelites who were of royal noble descent, young men in whom there was no physical defect, who had, were handsome, well-versed in all kinds of wisdom, well-educated, having keen insight, and who were capable of entering the king's royal service and to teach them the literature, the language of the Babylonians. So the king assigned to them a daily ration from his royal del delicacies and from the wine he himself drank. And they were to be trained for the next three years. At the end of the time, they were to enter the king's service. And as it turned out, among these young men were some from the Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The first thing we're told is that Nebuchadnezzar is not directly involved in this. As typical with powerful people, he has delegated this off to somebody else. That's not meant to be a negative comment. That's just an, a reality of power. And so he sets his court official to be in charge of making this happen. And what he's to make happen is they've taken royal 
nobles. So these men, and the, the, speaking of Israel specifically, now what's interesting is I remember when I was growing up, I had this picture that all these people were from different nations, and they were all like sitting in this court, and there's some like Assyrians and some Egyptians and some Hittites, and they're all here, and Daniel or like, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like the foreigners of Israel in the group. And, of course, they are all willing to participate, but the Jews are like, no, we're not going to do that. But that's not what's here. These are the people taken from Israel. That means that these are all Jews. They're all of royal noble birth. And they're all willing to compromise except for these four men. And that's what makes them unique. They're not unwilling to compromise because they're Jews. They're standing amongst the Jews, and they're unwilling to compromise. So they're doing even what their own cult, their own people are not doing. And this doesn't surprise you, because the reason the Jews are in exile to begin with is because they've already compromised with the pagan nations. So Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not unique because they are Jewish. They're unique because of their faith in Yahweh. And that's always been the message of the Bible. The true people of God are the people of faith, not ethnicity. And so they refuse to give in. There's no physical defect. Now, this is interesting. Don't take this literally. I doubt there was like not one blemish on their body. These guys are MVP in everything. They are handsome. They're not flawed in any kind of way. They're athletically superior as specimens. They're intelligent these are those people that you love to hate like like oh my gosh like you are incredible you're getting straight A's in school and you're the most valuable player in baseball football and soccer and cross country and you can play a musical instrument and getting all these awards for it and you're an artist you can do everything and you're like really socially like gifted and hanging out with everybody and it's like what the heck like something got unbalanced here and I know people like that it's like oh Okay, so this is, and then they're extremely wealthy too, on top of that. Basically, it's like, culturally speaking, there's no flaw in them. These are the elite of the elite, physically, intelligence, and status. They were brought in. And what the king immediately begins to do is re-educate them. Three years, this is basically college. And if you ever wonder, can somebody truly be re-educated and everything that they've ever been grown up with and ever been taught be completely undone by just a three-year education somewhere? Heck yes. I have seen many college students come out completely re-educated. In fact, I know many professors who blatantly said in articles, my job is to destroy the faith that your parents gave you and to make you a secularist. Like... That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. His goal is to re-educate them. He wants them to think like a Babylonian, act like a Babylonian, and promote Babylonian interests. And this will happen in two different ways. He will either take some of these people to make them as his advisor for the purpose of saying, help me understand your people. And he's probably thinking in his head so that I can better manipulate them and squeeze them for what I want. Or... He's going to send them back like good little brainwashed boys back to Israel in order to maintain his interests over the Jews there where he is so physically and geographically separated from that. So think of this like Hitler's youth, where Hitler took a lot of people, little boys from Poland 
and Romania and parts of Germany and everywhere he conquered. And he brought them into his camps. He re-educated them, basically brainwashed them so that he could send them back out to these countries to keep the Third Reich's interests forefront in those nations and guiding them. Now, fortunately, he never ruled long enough for those kids to grow up and really change the world, but they would have. They would have. He is seeking to make them Babylonian. One of the first things that he begins to do is he renames them. All throughout the Bible and in the ancient Near East, there's two things that give you control over something. And so when you look at pagan, you put, look at pagan mythology stories, and you look at the Bible, and you look at the way that people talk in cultures during this time period in the ancient Near East, if you create something or you name it, it gives you power and control over it. God shows that he is absolutely control and all sovereign over all things because he creates everything. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse between the waters above and waters below. God said, let there be a separation between the waters of formed land. God said, let there be grass. The fact that he's creating everything gives him control over everything. And that's rooted in, in all the culture, the way they think. And even today, we know that. Like, we know copyright laws are the minute you write something, draw something, write a music or whatever, it automatically is yours. You don't have to submit it for copyright. Submitting for copyright it makes sure that other people know it's yours so that they'll offend you in a court case. But the minute you create it, it is automatically yours. That's ownership. But naming it also makes it yours. This is one of the reasons why we name our children or name our dogs. Um, hopefully you're not just naming them because you want to have control over them, but there's a sense that they are under my authority. I'm the one that names them. They belong to me. I have the right to name them because they belong to me. Naming something gives you control over it. And all throughout the pagan mythologies, you see this over and over again. Like there's even a story with Ra where um, how the serpent became so powerful is Ra had the power over life and all this kind of stuff, and the serpent wanted it. And the serpent knew that the only way that they can control this power of life is if they knew Ra's name. Not his name Ra, but his secret God name. His secret God name, by the way, like takes like days to say. It's so long. And so the serpent wanted it because he knew if he knew Ra's secret name, he would have the power of Ra to control Ra and make Ra do what he wanted, and that would give him the power of life. And the whole, there's this whole story of the serpent then tricking Ra into giving him his name. Now you're like, well, that's kind of weird. We have a modern-day version of that called Rumpelstiltskin. And Rumpelstiltskin is the same thing that where he has put this, this idea, in, and the idea is if, he, if she can learn his name, then the curse or his control will be lost. And so it's all about her trying to learn name. And once she knows his name, she has control over Rumpelstiltskin. In fact, the name Yahweh, one of the reasons that the Jews stopped speaking the name Yahweh, even though God came to Moses in Exodus 3 and said, My name is Yahweh, and you shall, and your people, and all Israel shall call me by Yahweh forever. And all throughout the Bible, you don't see Yahweh in the English, but you do see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, capital all capital Lord. And whenever you see Lord, all capital letters, all throughout the Bible, in the Hebrew it's saying, That's Yahweh. And if you go through your Bible, that shows up all the time, on everybody's lips, all the way through the Bible. By the time you get to the Second Testament, and now in Christianity today, you don't hear people say Yahweh a lot because the Jews stopped using the name Yahweh 
because the name Yahweh started being used by the pagans as a magical term. They believed now that they knew the name of God, like God was ding-dong enough to reveal his secret hidden name. That's what they're thinking. What Yahweh is saying is, I want to have a personal, intimate relationship with you, so here's my name. And Yahweh knows that knowing his name does not give you power and control over him. But that's the way they thought. And so Yahweh started showing up in a lot of pagan rituals and magical rituals to control the universe and gain things. So the Jews stopped using the name. That was one of the reasons they stopped using the name, because it was being abused. And the hope was that it would be forgotten so that it would no longer be abused. Not forgotten in the Bible, but forgotten in its pronunciation. And they were successful, because we don't know exactly how that word is pronounced. I mean, Yahweh is like what everybody says, but we don't even know that's correct. By renaming them, he's basically exercising his control over them. Okay, I remember um, my sister-in-law had this cat, and his name was Wesley. And she named him Wesley because if you've ever seen The Princess Bride, Wesley wears this mask, and he was this cat that actually looked like he had this mask wearing. So she named him Wesley. And so she then moved to Malaysia, and she couldn't take the cat with her, so she found a good home for it. And one day she was visiting them because she was good friends with them. And she had come back from Malaysia after a year and she was visiting them. And she, she was like, Wesley, come here. And they're like, oh, his name's not Wesley anymore. We've named him Calvin because we're Calvinists, not Wesleyans. <laughs> She's like, that's not why I named him that. But basically what they're saying is we're, we were renaming him because we have a different way of thinking and he's now ours. And so this is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He gives them all different names. Daniel's name in Hebrew means that my judge is God. Dan is the word judge, and El is Elohim, God. So my, my judge is God. So notice his name reflects Yahweh as his God. But his name is changed to Belshazzar. Do not confuse that with Belshazzar. Um, Belshazzar is the king. Belshazzar is Belgard, his life. Bel is another name for Marduk. And Marduk was the storm god of the Babylonians, and he was the most high god. The equivalent of this is in the Canaanite culture that the Jews were surrounded by, they worshiped a god by the name of Baal, or you've heard it called Baal or Baal. And he was the storm god, where the Babylonians had the same thing. When the Greeks come along, they're going to rename Marduk and Baal Zeus, because he is the storm god, and he's the most high god. When the, the Anglos and the Saxons come in and kind of take over the Roman Empire, they're going to rename him, they're going to, they're going to call him Thor, the storm god. And so these gods are all the same god throughout history. They just have different names based on the culture that's become more dominant. Notice that he names them that Bell guard his life. Judging is, one of the jobs of a judge is the guard and to protect you, to protect your rights and to, to, um, to acknowledge your rights in court. And so what he's doing is notice that judge and guard is similar in the name, but what's changing is the God. He's trying to switch Daniel's allegiance from one God to another God, and he's putting Daniel under the authority of his God, and that God will now direct him. Hananiah, which means Yahweh has been gracious, Hannah is Yahweh has been gracious, was renamed Shadrach, which means illuminated by the sun God. If I'm showing you my grace... I am pouring out my illumination or my rays upon you, my, my face, my countenance, my joy, my smiling. So that graciousness and illumination stays the same, but the God changes from Yahweh, Yahweh, to the sun God. 
Mishael is who is what God is. And it's not a question like, well, who is God? It's a statement like, there is no one like God. And that is changed to Meshach, which means who is like the moon god. Same question, just a different god's name. And Azariah means Yahweh has helped, was renamed to Abednego, servant of Nego. Yahweh is my help, but helping and servant are very similar to each other. And Nego was one of their most predominant gods. So what's changing is that he's putting them under a new headship. And it's the headship of the gods. And now that the gods have control of their heads, so to speak, guiding them in providence, he can point them wherever he wants them to go, and they will begin to think and act like a Babylonian and promote the worldview and the interests of the Babylonian. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. And it will work for predominantly the most of people who come through this. Most people do not have a strong enough rooted self-identity and solid worldview that they can defend, that they often can be redirected by media and governments and propaganda. The masses can. But there are a few people who will not allow themselves to be directed, redirected for good or bad, sometimes not redirected in a stubborn, and sometimes not redirected because they know where they stand and they know where their morals are. This is what he's trying to accomplish with these four men. Everything about this is a brainwashing campaign to promote the interests of the Babylonians.